Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Lukas Farnung from Harvard Medical School on the show. Lucas, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you did your PhD in the lab, lab of Patrick Kramer and also stayed there as a postdoc until 2019. You then started your own lab and became project leader at the University of Göttingen. And then in two, 2021, you moved to Harvard Medical School as assistant professor of cell biology and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, I think I, I became interested in science relatively early and uh, I think through a interesting path. I'm sure you're familiar with the Tour de France. Yes, um, I am. When I was 10 years old, I got kind of addicted by it. And um, as you probably know, a big problem in the early 2000s in the Tour de France was really doping, especially doping uh, with a protein called EPO. Uh, which is involved, of course, in red blood uh, cell generation. And, um, you know, made really these fantastic cyclists climb out DS, you know, in a very short time. And um, actually, as a high school project, I decided to write an essay about EPO. So, um, with, with or without experiments? With very limited experiments, basically just, you know, doing classical chemical reactions to prove the presence of an amino acid, for example, um, in the sample. And um, what I actually then did, what was uh, exciting for me, is I downloaded PyMole, this molecular visualization tool that shows you structures. And I downloaded EPO from the PDB and looked at it in three dimensions and you could change the color of the protein. And I just found this incredibly satisfying, I would say, to look at this and really say, okay, these are individual atoms that we're looking at. So I kind of became hooked with that. And then roughly at the same time, we also started actually learning about transcription and chromatin in the high school biology class that I took. And I just found the directionality of RNA or DNA synthesis by polymerases so exciting that it can only happen in the five prime to three prime direction that I thought, oh my gosh, I really have to study this. And actually I want to see individual atoms and I have to you know, perform biochemistry and structural biology for my university studies. So I ended up um, going to, to London. So I left, left Germany and uh, studied biochemistry at University College London. And then already in my um, first kind of like summer break that I had, I went back to my hometown in Germany, which is uh, Dortmund, and I studied in the lab of Matthias Geier um, transcription really in its core by trying to understand how certain kinases are phosphorylating the largest subunit of uh, RNA polymerase II, the CTD of RPB1. And uh, I just got hooked with this. And at the end of the internship, I kind of already decided I need to work in my PhD on, um, you know, RNA polymerase II and RNA polymerases in general. I then did like a little summer internship um, with Seth Darst at Rockefeller University in New York, learned a little bit about the bacterial polymerase, and then eventually ended up in, in Patrick Kramer's lab to uh, structurally characterize RNA polymerase II. Oh. So this is how <laughs> I got introduced to science. Now, this is a perfect segue to to 
to your science, actually. Um, according to your website, if we are looking at the, the current state, um, your work centers around understanding molecular mechanisms at the intersection of chromatin and transcription, elucidating transcription through chromatin with visual biochemistry, which is also very interesting, um, and unraveling the function of chromatin remodelers. Um, so let's see if we can touch upon all those uh, three topics. <laughs> But I want to start in the year two. 2017 because that's now where we finished or where you you finished um there you worked in the lab of practice Kramer and i think that this was your first uh, first author paper um and this paper you in this paper you report the cryo electron microscopy structure of chat one from the yeast um, saccharomyces cerevisiae bound to a nucleosome at the resolution of 4.8 angstrom so uh, what did you learn from this study and the structure of chat one Yeah, I actually have to say it was a winding route to end up with the structure of CHD1. So initially in Patrick's lab, I was kind of one of the first doctoral researchers that was supposed to work with cryo-electron microscopy. Um, when I started uh, in Patrick's lab roughly in 2013, really this resolution revolution that everybody is talking about now just started. You know, we had direct detectors now. We had high-voltage electron microscopes now that made it possible to no longer get like structures only at 20 angstrom with cryo-electron microscopy but at higher resolution. So Patrick actually gave me um, as the project to solve RNA polymerase 2 in complex with a nucleosome. But I have to say, I terribly failed at that <laughs> for um, about the first three or four years. And I guess we'll later cover how I still managed to then uh, derive that structure. And kind of as a, I would say, emergency project to, to still save my thesis, we very carefully just looked at other factors that are interacting with both chromatin, with the nucleosome, and with RNA polymerase too. And one of these that had been identified by um, Karen Arndt was this chromatin remodeler CHD1 that also interacts with a path complex that is able to bind RNA polymerase too. And uh, so we um, expressed the full-length protein, which I think at that time hasn't been done before. Um, this was uh, in insect cells. And I was then very lucky, I think, um, or it was a serendipitous moment, really, to get the structure of CHD1 bound uh, to, a, to a nucleosome with cryem, and we solved it um, under sub-5 angstrom of resolution, which was really exciting because for the first time it was possible to see how a chromatin remodeler is actually uh, bound to its nucleosomal substrate and how it is able to engage and, and slide the nucleosomes around. Um, so first of all, we literally just learned from that how remodelers, first of all, bind the nucleosome, but also how auxiliary domains um, that are present in CHD1 are actually able to, to modulate the activity um, of this enzyme. So where on the nucleosome does CHAT1 bind then? Is it the acidic patch? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's of course the uh, fantastic question because the acidic patch is this hot spot um, on the nucleosome. But in fact, actually, initially we just saw, very similar to other chromatin remodelers since we have uh, learned since, CHD1 binds to superhelical location 2 of the nucleosome. So it mainly engages actually um, DNA where it binds with its ATPase motor. And then through the... Um, hydrolysis of ATP, it is able to translocate DNA, and this then ultimately results in nucleosome sliding. Since then, we have actually learned that uh, CHD1 is not only able to engage at superhelical location 2 of the DNA, basically, but it is actually also able, you know, with an N terminal tail to also engage the acidic patch, which at the time we actually did not uncover, but then later studies revealed that there's also an interaction of that. Yeah, that would have been my question, right? If it's only binding the DNA 
would it be able to bind the DNA somewhere else, not in a, a nucleosomal context? Or uh, yeah, but but you basically answered that. Yeah, but maybe just to elaborate yeah. this on a little bit, it was actually very exciting because we saw that there is an auxiliary domain that is part of CHD1. It's actually called a double chromo domain that is responsible also to bind methylated um, histone tails. At you know, at least in certain CHG remodelers. I already have to give this qualifying statement. And it turns out that the way this, this, that this auxiliary domain moves basically upon binding to the nucleosome, there is an intrinsic mechanism in that, that the ATPase motor plus the double chromo domain together actually recognize the curvature of the nucleosome. So making sure that the remodeler only engages nucleosome and not just linear DNA, because you can imagine if you could just bind to any uh, DNA molecule, um, any linear stretch of DNA that you have, you just start to hydrolyze ATP, which is of course very detrimental to the cell because you're using up, you know, ginormous resources of energy. So this would indicate or suggest that it's not like sequence specific, but it's like the overall 3D structure of the nucleosome that makes CHAD1 bind to its substrate. Exactly. I think this is how it could be described. I mean, there's still some evidence also that there might be some sequence dependence for the binding of these chromatin remodelers. But overall, we now learn that all of the four subfamilies of chromatin remodelers exist, that they, for the largest part, are binding to superhelical location 2 on the DNA. So there is this histone chaperone fact and you also looked at um, the interaction or the combination of CHAD1 and its histone chaperone, which is fact. So what did you learn from the structure of both enzymes? Yeah, so this is actually a little bit um, of a longer story. So initially, we, we tried to actually just visualize CHD1 on the nucleosome. But it turned out whenever I tried to form the complex between nucleosome and CHD1, the sample completely precipitated. And I mean... Precipitation, I literally mean like a white foam forming um, in the test tube when we did it. So at the beginning of the CHD1 nucleosome project, I was a little bit sad because I really couldn't, you know, get this in a nice biochemical, biophysically, you know, um, available quality. And I have to say, I kind of randomly started to go to the minus 80, took out the the rack basically with all the proteins that I had purified. And my thinking was that see what kind of additional factor I can add to CHD1 to make it not precipitate anymore together with the nucleosome. And it turned out that the only factor that could do that is actually FACT. So I put FACT and uh, CHD1 together and visualized this on the nucleosome. But I actually only saw CHD1 and it, in the end in the density. FACT was present, but I couldn't visualize it. And this is where we then kind of pivoted slowly in my postdoctoral work that I still did with Patrick Kramer to, you know, really understanding transcription through chromatin, where we not only visualize RNA polymerase 2 in the nucleosome, but also understanding how additional factors are interacting with this as well. And um, that was a more recent study that we published, I think, two years ago. And we were able to show how CHD1 and then also fact are binding to the transcribed uh, nucleosome. Yeah, you mentioned earlier, um, like five minutes ago, <laughs> um, that you were trying to solve the structure of RNA pol 2 and that you ultimately kind of succeeded in doing so. So how did you succeed and what did you learn from, from the structure then? Yeah, so Patrick, my supervisor during my um, PhD and postdoc, solved um, about 20 years ago the first structure of RNA polymerase 2 in the lab of um, Roger Kornberg. And this then culminated for Roger um, in a Nobel Prize, actually. And 
After that, of course, focus on the, on the structural study of RNA polymerase II was largely focused on linear DNA templates. So people were able to purify RNA polymerase II from huge 250-liter fermenter runs of, uh, of yeast, basically, and then had you know, synthesized oligos that they could give to the polymerase and visualize it then and, in fact, crystallize it to solve the structure. The problem with this is, of course, that, as we probably all know, the natural template inside of a cell, inside of the nucleus, is actually a chromatinized DNA template, right? Where the linear DNA is actually wrapped around histones to form nucleosomal organization. But it was really problematic with crystallography, actually, to solve this complex of RNA polymerase II and the nucleosome. As far as I'm aware, this hadn't even been tried at the time, simply because the packing in a crystal would not allow, uh, it would not allow to pack. So with cryem with like a more solution-based technique, we were then able to, to kind of tackle this and establish a fully in vitro reconstituted system to visualize both the nucleosome and then putting the RNA polymerase II on that. So how many nucleosomes would you need to put in or on the template to make RNA pol 2 bind? Is it like just one or how much DNA would you need to, to fully... So currently we're actually working with mononucleosomes. And we actually employ a trick where we leave a little bit of linear DNA in front of the nucleosome. We can then, through making a so-called tail template, anneal actually an RNA primer to this extra nucleosomal DNA. So we have basically a DNA-RNA hybrid that sits in front of the nucleosome. When I then add RNA polymerase 2 to that, I can bind the polymerase stably. And then I use NTPs to actually start the synthesis of the RNA molecule. So the polymerase will use the DNA as a template and elongate by making the RNA into the nucleosome. So we are currently, because we are fully in vitro reconstituting this, just using one mononucleosome. But of course, you know, in the future, and maybe that's the discussion we will have at the end, it will be very exciting to also look at this in higher order chromatin structure. So what you maybe next or last did at your postdoc with uh, Patrick Krama is that you looked at CHAT4, which is a component of, of different chromatin complexes like the NERD and the CHOP complex. So what is the difference between, like, I think there are, also, there are four or maybe even more uh, CHD proteins. So what is the difference among those? Yeah, so in my PhD work, I was working on yeast CHD1. And yeast CHD1 is the only member of the CHD family in Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Whereas in human, we actually see this expansion where there are now a total of nine members that can be further subdivided in three subfamilies. And we had solved the yeast CHD1 structure. But of course, the question that we had is, why does the human system, why do humans require actually nine CHD remodelers to do their work if in yeast there's just one CHD member that can perfectly do it. So we try to look at CHD4, which is part of a different subfamily than CHD1 that is involved at the formation and maintenance of heterochromatin, for example, and also again solved the structure with uh, cryoEM. And there was really not much different actually that we solved in the structure, except for that very interestingly, the um, yeast CHD1 um, molecule is able to unwrap some DNA from the nucleosome, making it basically more accessible to other molecular machines, such as the DNA replication of the transcription machinery. CHD4 doesn't seem to do that. 
Um, this is an observation that we have right now, and we in fact actually do not know exactly why this is the case right now, but of course this is you know subject to ongoing research. Okay. So then you started your own lab. Um, could you maybe take us on the journey on when you started it and how you decided which direction your lab should take? Right. So I started at a very peculiar time because I interviewed at Harvard Medical School for the position that I'm you know, at right now um, in February of 2020. Everybody knows what that means. <laughs> exactly. I mean, just like one word, Corona, right? Or COVID. And I came back from this interview and two weeks later, research and I think life as a whole on this planet kind of ceased for a while. Um, I was very lucky that, you know, just a few weeks later, I got a phone call um, from Harvard Medical School saying, oh, you know, we're happy to offer you a position. I was really glad to accept that because it's a very exciting environment for transcription and chromatin research that with, you know, very um, distinguished colleagues. Um, and I was lucky that at the Max Planck Institute with, with Patrick, who we were actually during the corona um, situation, still working on SARS-CoV-2 virus and the polymerase and learning how it makes the RNA molecule to really propagate inside of a cell. So I was kind of busy for a long time with SARS-CoV-2 and then had already postponed the start of my own lab well into 2021. Um, I had some visa issues to get in the US because there was a travel ban on, on foreigners to come back. Um, but then I eventually made it even before the vaccines were fully rolled out um, to the US. And um, I always describe it, it was like, like a desert that I came to. You know, you hear about Harvard, Harvard Medical School is really being this hub of science, right? Boston being this science city. And it was just empty. I came into the department I had my own, you know, office and my own lab, but there was literally nobody else around. Nobody wanted to talk to you. Nobody wanted to communicate simply because they didn't want to get COVID, right? And strict rules were still in place to prevent infection. So I was more or less alone in the lab um, together with a whole bunch of boxes that I had to unpack and, you know... Um, to really re-establish really the lab. And then we were really lucky that a few months later we got access to the vaccine and that kind of life started again. And, um, you know, I was able to recruit already a few PhD and postdocs very early on that really helped with, you know, doing the research that we're doing now. And um, we kind of now want to expand our, struct uh, our structural work that we did initially on chromatin transcription, the yeast system, also into human organism. And what we're trying to do is really fully reconstitute transcription in a test tube. So we're not now only purifying RNA polymerase 2 or the nucleosome, but we are also trying to obtain, mostly through recombinant expression and purification, all the other factors that are involved in this process. And we can now form complexes that are up to 80 subunits in size to really reconstitute this. So this is one aspect that we're trying to do. And then, of course, as I already alluded to, there's still more work to do with chromatin remodeling with the CHD family. So we're also working on this additionally in the lab. Yeah, this is a question that I want to come in a bit, <laughs> actually. But uh, when you started your own lab, and um, I don't know if that's like the first publication from your own lab or if it's still influenced by Patrick Kramer's uh, lab, um, but at least it landed straight in science. <laughs> the one I was talking uh, about, what a success, really. Um, could you talk about this paper, how it came together, maybe also in this um, yeah, unsure environment, uh, how, how you worked on that and uh, what you found out? Yeah, so this is the first, um, you know, paper that was fully created in my lab and um, 
a very talented PhD student in my lab, Martin Filipowski, recognized um, very early on after joining a few months in my lab that was still in 2021 that the work that I had done in Patrick's lab was highly inefficient actually in how we are making these RNA polymerase to nucleosome complexes. And he then very, very systematically improved conditions in our in vitro reconstitution and um, was bringing up bringing this up from a level where we maybe in cryo-EM saw like 0.1% of all particles going into the reconstructions that we want to do to really get a high resolution view on, um, on, on chromatin transcription to actually a level where we could really, you know, distinguish multiple states and so on. And um, with that, we just, you know, were able to implement the changes that he had, he had discovered and, and get the structure of nucleosome retention. And what is very interesting is the fact that in in vitro reconstitutions over the last really 30 years, we mostly see where that when RNA polymerase to this really mega Dalton complex transcribes through a nucleosome, which is only, you know, acute 200 <laughs> kilodaltons in size, in vitro, quite often, H2A, H2B dimer, as well as histone octamers are actually being ejected when this, you know, fast machine goes through uh, the nucleosome. Mm -hmm. But that is actually problematic because in vivo, the most frequent outcome of transcribing a gene, of transcribing through a nucleosome is actually its nucleosome retention. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but what does it mean, retention? So it basically means that this nucleosome, with its epigenetic modifications, let's say H3K4 trimethylation or H3K36 trimethylation, ubiquitination, acetylation, you name it really, is basically staying exactly at the same position it was before. Okay. So it's just like put away and put back or... Or maybe just, even staying uh, there. And what we were able to find is an intermediate where basically already transcribed DNA, so a piece of the polymer that the polymerase has already traversed through actually rewraps the nucleosome again that sits in front of the polymerase. Mm -hmm. Kind of allowing it now with like kind of two arms hugging the nucleosome from two sides. And this now kind of intuitively, I think, gives a mechanism of how nucleosome retention happens. Initially, the polymerase transcribes into the nucleosome and unravels DNA. This exposes the histone octamer and it's actually quite problematic because it can lead to this loss, right? Because I'm losing ionic and non-ionic interactions that are usually there. Then the piece of DNA that I've already transcribed comes out of the polymerase and rewraps again these exposed histones that are present um, first. When I then transcribe further, I displace the rest of the downstream DNA and basically leave the histone octamers completely to the already transcribed DNA, really providing a... I think, very elegant way of how polymerase is able to traverse through a nucleosome at the same time making sure that the nucleosome stays at the same position within a gene. And in vitro, you wouldn't have this long DNA to do this hugging? Well, that was one of the problems initially that we did, that we exactly didn't have this longer DNA. And I think we also didn't have the conditions, right? We were operating in too high of a salt, for example. We were not optimizing um, our factor mixes that we were putting into the reaction. And Martin really did this fantastic work where he was able to get to a condition where we can observe this nucleosome retention at high resolution. Mm -hmm. And this is the publication that we were just discussing. Um, so maybe you did this work or you didn't, but but what it, in this uh, DNA hugging, um, are there subunits of the polymerase involved or is it like external proteins that come into the complex or is it just happening by liquid phase uh, separations uh, things or what is it 
So we actually see that there are factors that are usually traveling with RNA polymerase II that are involved in this process. Um, the complex where we have seen changes is called DSIF and consists out of two subunits, SPT5 and SPT4. And in fact, it's one of the most well-conserved factors that are involved in uh, transcription, really for SPT5 from bacteria all the way to, to humans. And what we see is that SPT5 and SPT4 kind of binds between the two DNA strands that are separated by the polymerase. And this hugging again of the DNA that has already been transcribed is actually only facilitated when SPT4 and 5 are getting displaced. So there is some regulatory mechanism that controls when the DNA is folding back on the uh, exposed histone octamer. Yeah, it's it's really very interesting because we are also we, we look at like histone modifications, we look at RNA pol two, but what happens when transcription is going on and all those things are in the way of the polymerase, it's still like fascinating to see how this yeah, and it's works. so it's it's also so important, right? Yeah. Because if we are ejecting nucleosomes that are epigenetically modified all the time when we're transcribing through them as RNA polymerase two, we're actually robbing ourselves of the epigenetic information, the regulatory information that is present in the histone code. I would like to say. You are now set up. You have your own money. You are maybe looking for another grant. So, what is it that you would write into your in your next grant application that you? want to do in the next let's say five years yeah we are obviously now very excited about having found this mechanism of nucleosome retention to understand other co-transcriptional processes that are happening while we are transcribing with rna polymerase 2 through chromatin and one of the examples would be the deposition of histone marks that are very critical for the regulation of gene expression of a certain gene. One example here would for would be HVK36 trimethylation. The classical. the classical one, which marks virtually all actively transcribed gene bodies. And in fact, we're you know presenting work now at a number of conferences um, where we can show that SETI2, the histomethyltransferase that is responsible for depositing HVK36 trimethylation is actually dependent on transcription through a nucleosome. And we have a high-resolution structure at sub-4 angstrom resolution where we can show how the polymerase unwraps DNA from the nucleosome and only this unwrapping actually facilitates binding of SETI2 oh. and the deposition of HVK36 trimethylation. So I think this is really an exciting um, you know, avenue to go down now to really understand how all of these different histone marks are playing a role um, during transcription through chromatin. I mean, there is, on the one hand, like the deposition of those marks, and then also the like the the impact of those marks. What do they do? Are they just there because they need to be there? Uh, is is uh, RNA pol two responding to those marks? We actually, in fact, know that, for example, acetylation of nucleosomes actually facilitates transcription through nucleosomes. That would be one direct impact where we have that, but. Because, no, it's because it's more open, right? When acetylation Exactly. Yeah. It seems to be that the DNA can breathe more and this makes it easier for RNA polymerase 2 to transcribe into, into a single nucleosome. But what, of course, you were already alluding to, even more important is that these histone modifications also serve as a binding platform for many, many other um, factors. And I think this is where we kind of like uh, complete uh, <laughs> my, my life kind of, or, or at least my scientific life. CHD1 is one of, in the human system, is one of these um, readers that can recognize H3K4 trimethylation. And we also know that CHD1 is at least to some degree acting 
code transcriptionally. So it would of course now be very, very exciting to visualize RNA polymerase 2 with all its transcription allongation factors, then CHT1 coming in. But you can really think about any other factor that is, you know, interacting both with polymerase and the nucleosome that we already know. And really, we would like to understand how this works. Yeah. So... Yeah, it will be very interesting to see what comes out. And if you're presenting the work now and even tomorrow, because we are not at the EMBL meeting now, um, and hopefully it's in bioarchive soon to to then um, see what what, what uh, you came out, uh, out with. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. And the first one, um, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or hit a wall where you did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? In the beginning, you already said that it kind of was the case with some of those projects. So maybe you can share uh, st some stories there or one. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I kind of alluded to that. I started working on transcription through chromatin at the start of my PhD. And then after, you know, three, four years, I had to realize that um, I don't have the tools or the insight at that point in time to actually solve this problem. And the strategy that I took was literally to step back um, and focus my efforts first on a different project, which resulted in the structure of uh, nucleosome bound by CHT1, which, of course, is also very exciting. And then after having completed this, this structure, I think I, I got a different perspective on, on how to approach these kind of reconstitution problems, went back And a year later, was able to obtain the first structure of RNA polymerase 2 plus, plus a nucleosome. So I think sometimes, you know, walking back a little bit, trying to look at the broad picture and then stepping back can, can help. And then, of course, lots of discussion with colleagues that will always help you in, you know, coming up with new ideas. Yeah. So in the last 30 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about, in your opinion, your most important findings or something that we might have missed? I think the most important finding is really that for the longest time, transcription, and especially the structural characterization of RNA polymerase 2, was viewed as its own field, um, basically. Then at the same time, also chromatin nucleosome complexes were understood just on their own using biochemical and structural means. And I think was I was able to to kind of bring to the table is now to look at these processes at the same time because we know that they are intricately linked to each other. Their um, regulation is interdependent on each other. And uh, I think this is like kind of what I brought here is really to study chromatin and transcription together. And through that, we, we learn that quite often these canonical nucleosome structures, you know, 145 base pairs wrapped around a nucleosome, are really sometimes not the structures that we really want to study because some factors are actually recognizing exactly the nucleosome while it is being unwrapped during a co-transcriptional process, for example. And I'm sure that we will see very similar things also when we start looking at DNA replication, for example, or when other researchers will really look at this. So this will be, I think, very exciting to understand these really big macromolecular machines together with chromatin to really represent what is happening inside of a cell. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned, and I just want to mention that because I really didn't think of that, because when you're studying those processes and those molecules, you never... I have the feeling that I really never think about it as what are the scales that you're looking at, right? I mean, you, you know the nucleosome and then you have like the RNA pole 2, but maybe RNA pole 2 is like a factor of 10 bigger than the nucleosome and you really didn't, don't think about that because it's just everything is so small and you don't really realize that. Exactly. And I think this is overall the 
kind of role that structural biology plays, right? Quite often we like to look at these beautiful PowerPoint or keynote slides where we see a whole bunch of ovals or squares that are labeled with a protein name or, you know, a certain sequence. But it turns out that actually all of these entities exist in three dimensions. And there are certain constraints and restraints that they're creating through that. And really to visualize this with structural biology is uh, kind of what I, what I dream of doing every day since I watched Tour de France and, and Dopers using EPO uh, for that. Yeah, thank you, Lucas, for your time and for being on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.